Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. So today we'll be focusing on the UK economy, the race for a vaccine, and how this is all driving the UK residential market. I'm joined by Yale Selfin, Chief Economist at KPMG UK, and Knight Frank's UK Head of Residential Research, Tom Bill. So to start with, I'll be catching up with Tom on what he's seeing in the residential property market. So Tom, what can you tell us about the current state of the market? Do you think we're in a bubble at the moment? The current state of the market is very good, actually. Uh, it's as strong as it's been in, in many years uh, in terms of the activity levels that we're seeing. And there's probably several reasons for that. I think obviously pent up demand that formed during during lockdown is combining with more longer term pent up demand that's been building for years against the backdrop of Brexit and tax changes. And that's what's driving demand in the market. But we're also seeing very high levels of supply. It's actually quite a sustainable market in many ways. So number of properties that are going under offer are at levels that we haven't seen in, in 20 plus years. I think the other thing that's probably driving it is the fact that there is some uncertainty around what happens later this year, which is maybe bringing forward some decision making as well as the stamp duty holiday that the um, Chancellor has announced. So right now we are in perhaps a slightly artificial moment in time, but the levels of activity that we're seeing are very strong. And where would you say are the sort of strongest areas if we take London as an example? I mean, are they the sort of, I suppose, leafier boroughs perhaps? I mean, how are, how are central London yeah. properties doing? I think if you're looking at the capital, then those parts of London where you have more family houses, slightly leafier areas, Richmond, Dulwich, Barnes, Wandsworth, those sorts of areas, where we're actually seeing prices not grow necessarily on a year-on-year basis, but actually those monthly declines that we saw earlier this year have started to reverse. And we're seeing very small incremental month-on-month price growth. I mean, then it's nothing, it's nothing to write home about. But it's a sign, I think, that the markets in those parts of London are strong, mirroring what we're seeing in what we've seen in country markets, which actually have done very well throughout the lockdown. And it means actually in some parts of the capital, there's, you know, we're going to seal bids on family houses and there's a shortage of supply and demand is so strong that we're left in this sort of situation of an imbalance. It's a slightly different central London. I think central London is probably a bit more recovering in a bit more of a steady way. We're not seeing necessarily a lot of month on month growth. Prices are still probably just slightly ticking down. But overall, I would say across the capital, across the country, the asking price to achieve price, the discount to asking price, should I say, is getting smaller. So everything's kind of heading in the same direction, although just a little bit more quickly in leafier parts of the country. And obviously, Tom, you've been on previous podcasts. I mean, do you think we know any more now about how significant buyers changing sentiment around lifestyle and where they want to be and how significant that might be for the London market? You mentioned country markets have done well, but I mean, do you think this is quite a temporary change or you think it could be quite significant? I think there's something definitely happening. There's been a big shift in terms of where people are looking. We saw, for example, in the first week of August, as many London-based buyers looking inside London as they were looking in the wider southeast. Normally, you'd expect to see sort of three or four times more buyers looking within the capital, London-based buyers looking inside the capital than you would in the wider southeast. So I think people's tastes and requirements have changed. I mean, interestingly, at the beginning of lockdown, we saw a bit of a spike for demand in the southwest. I think perhaps trying to interpret that is people initially thinking, God, you know, we want to be pretty rural, we want to be quite remote. And it's probably, if anything, just rain back in slightly 
perhaps people are thinking actually well the commute into london might be something that we need to factor in it's actually the moment looking at london-based buyers it's the wider southeast area that's really picking up home counties so i think people are perhaps thinking a bit more seriously about the future realizing that they're perhaps not coming into london as frequently as they used to but it's still an important thing that they have to do and overall i think i I mean my comment overall would be i think it's too easy to think that this is going to produce a structural long-term shift in the way that you know the way that things are done i think those sorts of analysis is is probably not helpful what we saw after 9-11 people were talking about the end of the office tower the end of the tall tower of course it wasn't it was anything but Uh, So I see parallels there. But for now, absolutely, it's something that's very tangible. It's happening. And I think suburban markets are sort of having their moment. Thanks, Tom. Let's bring Gail in here. So, yeah, I think what we go place to start with is clearly the jobs market, which has a very tangible link to the housing market. And it'd be great to just get a sense from you and where you see unemployment levels ending up at the end of the year. Yes, so it is it is a very important question because so far we had a very big impact on the economy from the lockdown, but we haven't really seen the numbers so much in the unemployment level, but that was primarily as a result of the job retention scheme that was very effective in protecting a lot of the employment in the UK. Now, as that scheme unwinds, we expect unemployment level to increase significantly in the second half of this year. So it would probably be something very different to what we felt in the first half of the year. And we could see unemployment levels well above what we experienced even during the Great Recession of 2008-2009, given the number of people that have been on the furlough scheme so far. Are you able to put a sort of range on that, give us an idea of roughly where you see those numbers heading? So before, prior to COVID and all all along these months, we had unemployment at around 3.9%. We could easily see unemployment going up to between 6 to even 8% by the end of this year, but potentially even more than that. Could I ask, Gail, how prolonged do you think the unemployment is going to be if it gets up to those levels? So... We expect the unemployment level to remain persistently high for longer than what this economic crisis is going to be, just because it's going to take time for people to incorporate back into the labour market. And even once we start getting gross levels to pick up, and even when the economy reaches pre-COVID level, we will still have unemployment at a higher level than what we had before. And do you think that the government can reskill them, that they could be deployed elsewhere? Could perhaps some of them get into the bring to economy? We've seen, you know, clearly the rise of logistics. And could that potentially absorb some of the job losses? Yes. So, I mean, ultimately, there will be certain jobs that will no longer be there after this crisis. And people will need to be looking at other opportunities, potentially within other sectors, because this recession is going to trigger a significant structural change, and therefore there'll be certain jobs that will no longer be there. And what we will need is to get a significant chunk of the unemployed and reskill them and get them ready to move to other jobs and potentially to even better jobs than they had before and get them better skills and make sure that actually productivity level in the UK is boosted as a result of that. So so I think it is a positive story, if you like, for the UK more in the medium to longer term, but it does require 
a big effort from government to help people reskill and prepare for future jobs. The stamp duty holiday was, I think, designed to benefit not just the housing market, but the wider economy. Do you think that's something that the government could or should look at longer term, how stamp duty is structured and how property is taxed? I think stamp duty is a very important potential reform for the government, not so much because of the revenue attached to it, but because the ways that it affects people's mobility, especially at times when unemployment is very high. We need people to be mobile and be able to accept jobs offers wherever they are in the UK. And the stamp duty makes them much less mobile and more reluctant to move to other places. So I, I think government really needs to rethink the whole idea around stamp duty and potentially replace it by a different tax. Yeah, what do you think in the meantime the impact is going to be on residential property markets? Ah, that's your question, Tom. But I can tell you what I think. I have a number of worries. One is obviously unemployment levels. And I, I think even though we know that interest rates are going to stay low for a significant number of times, I think generally you'll probably agree with me that valuations across most of the country are not particularly high. The fact that we're going to have unemployment at such a high level and also, as added to that, we are going to have households with potentially a little bit less money overall because profitability is going to be low, bonuses are going to be lower, and people are going to be worried about their job for more than just the duration of this recession. That means that the downward pressure on residential prices would be quite significant. So. I mean, we haven't updated our residential forecasts yet, but, you know, but I think the risk of a correction is very, very high. I mean, we were aware of those risks. I mean, the market over the last five or six years has sort of been through a process of correction. There hasn't been a lot of house price growth in many parts of the country. I mean, how pessimistic are you? I mean, uh, how pessimistic do you see your forecast as being when sat alongside what other commentators are saying? So I think what makes me worried most is not so much the cyclical element of it, where we may have a little bit of a correction in prices where, where it is required, but then you will have the bounce back ultimately after a few months or, or a year or so. My, my yeah. main worry is the structural impact of it, because I know I appreciate you think that people will want to go back to work and commute, etc., a little bit like previously, and this is not going to be a big pivot to a different way of working. But I think if it is, it does mean that certain the value of certain places will change and you will have certain places that were very attractive before, less attractive now and, and vice versa. So you could have these bottlenecks, if you like, hot places where there wasn't enough supply before because of demand wasn't there that will halt up quite quickly with other places that will now be oversupplied, maybe where you have these big, you know, residential buildings and infrastructures that is close to offices that people don't necessarily feel they need to be there anymore. So I think it's this more structural adjustment that worries me a little bit more because I think that could be sharper and, and then the cyclical element. Yeah. I mean, for centuries, we've moved to the city and urbanisation is a very strong trend that we've seen. I mean, is that something that you could see reversing then or changing direction? 
So I think cities will continue playing a pivotal role in the functioning of the, the economy because that, that's a center and you would still, that's where you would expect people to congregate and, and exchange ideas. So main question is what format that would take? Would it be people just going to an office and sitting there or would it just be a range of collaboration centers, more like collaboration centers where people travel to a few times a week? And similarly, um, when it comes to meetings, you may not want to have business travels as much and, and rather just join certain conferences and business gatherings less frequently where you can see more people at the same time. So I think all these things will still take place most probably in cities, but it's just a question of how it would be structured and when people go into where. And, and I think in terms of the usage of space in the centre of cities, that could change. What about the government's approach on its build, build, build mantra? I mean, do you think that the government's doing the right thing by aiming to stimulate the economy by building more? And, and do you think this is a good tactic to boost jobs and stimulate housing delivery? Yes, to the degree that we have very low interest rates and it's not too bad for the government to borrow a little bit more and spend a little bit more. As long as it is spent on things that are going to help the economy in the longer term. So we don't really have the luxury to just spend on things that will, if you like, um, white elephants. We, we need to make sure that the money that we're borrowing is spent wisely because people do need it and the economy needs it beyond the initial boost to demand. And I think what worries me a little bit is that I think we are going through a big change in society and a big change in the way people are going to work and consume. And therefore, it does require some thinking before we throw money and start building. Unfortunately, if you're looking for shovel-ready projects, they may be projects that were planned for a different type of economy that is no longer the case. Just thinking about the amount of debt that's built up, I mean, how do you see that playing out? We've clearly had lots of discount schemes and tax initiatives coming in from stamp duty cuts to the more recent eat out to help out. I mean, when do we start picking up the bill for these things, do you think? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it is a worry for a lot of people, the amount of debt that the UK government is accumulating. But if you look at the cost of that debt, the cost of that debt is very low. And therefore, you could argue that if you borrow in order to improve our growth in the longer term. So just like any investment in the private sector, if you borrow and the, the return is going to be higher than the cost, it is potentially worthwhile to doing, provided you can borrow. We can borrow. We just need to make sure that whatever we borrow for is going to give us a high return in terms of higher growth and, and higher productivity. Now, it is unlikely that we will be able to maintain this high level of spending as a proportion of GDP permanently. There will be some point where we'll need to rein in some of, of that spending as a proportion of the size of the economy. But I think the government has a little bit more time and they would want to prioritize, first of all, jobs. So it's getting more people back into work and that will take some time. And also there's the levelling up agenda that they would want to address as well and, and spend some money there. So therefore, I think they may want to wait until the next parliament almost before they really start reining in on, on spending and potentially increasing taxes more significantly.
Just moving on to vaccines, clearly that's going to have a very significant impact and we're all hoping that one will come in. I mean, from KPMG's perspective, what sort of thoughts do you have or expectations do you have around various vaccine scenarios? So we've had quite a few good news recently. There's, there's a number of vaccine in the pipeline. One of them is UK. At least one of them is in the UK, developed in the UK. And the way things are looking at the moment, we may have a vaccine approved early next year and with production already starting ahead of the approval. So we may actually have a vaccine approved and some vaccine in stock early next year, which is great news because that would mean that at least in terms of uncertainty, it would lift quite a lot and we could see an immediate, almost immediate pickup in investment and even spending as a result of that. And then it will probably take between three and four months to roll out that vaccine across the population to give sufficient scale to allow the government to remove all social distancing restrictions. So we could see a resumption of, of real life, if you like, normal life, by May next year. What sections of the economy do you think you're going to see that immediate impact? I mean, in, in the housing market, obviously, it's very sentiment driven. And the fact that something you know may get discovered at a certain point or a vaccine is developed at a certain point may just encourage people to enter the property market. Are there other sectors of the economy that you think will see an instant boost just from that feel good factor? Yeah, absolutely. So if, if we think about households, it will be big ticket items, for example, that they wanted to delay purchasing just because of the uncertainty. That could be the case. Anything that is more discretionary spend, that may be time when you'll see more, more of that spending. Although, you know, you need to bear in mind that the still, unemployment will still be high and people may still want to be cautious as a result of that. And then in terms of sectors... It would be sectors that are related more to investment. So, for example, anything to do with construction, but, but not just construction, so machinery and stuff like that, that is related to physical investment. But then that you also have IT investment in IT, IT projects, etc., or larger IT projects where companies were reluctant to make that leap could be affected positively by it. And how about Brexit? Yeah, clearly that's also coming down the tracks. Do you think we're in a better position to secure a deal now than we were? What's your perspective on Yeah, on so we, we're going back from C to B. <laughs> exactly, yeah. At the moment, I think our, our main assumption or our main scenario, if you like, is that there will be a deal. It may not be the best deal and it may not get us as close to back to a unified market or a smooth seamless market, if you like, but it will be a deal. And I think that is the big distinction between a deal and a no deal, because it just opens the door for us to continue negotiation and to improve that relationship over the years. So, so I think at the moment, it looks like the more likely scenario. If there isn't one, then the main concern is the frictions that that could cause in borders at the start of the year. And that would impact both exports and imports quite significantly, at least in terms of goods. And then there's also the issue about uncertainty and, you know, and just sentiment more generally and the implication for the pound and, and around it. So, so it will be another shock, if you like, if we don't have a deal at the end of the year. Not as big as COVID, obviously, 
but we will probably feel it with potentially a slightly negative growth in the first quarter of next year. And how far do you think the pound's being held back at the moment by the Brexit uncertainty? Oh, it's very difficult to tell. The pound is, is affected by so many other things. It's not just the news here, but it's also the news in the other countries where, so for example, the US and, and Europe, etc. So that makes it quite volatile. My feeling is that Brexit is not necessarily the biggest story at the moment. There's other things, but it could resurface in later months. How do you think it's going to sort of change the approach to negotiations, if at all, on either side? What's happening with the pandemic? I think the problem in some ways is that the pandemic is really distracting our trading partners and, and they have even less time to deal with Brexit. So they're potentially less inclined to really think and try and accommodate the UK in that sense. That would be my worry. So they've got other things on their plate at this stage. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm-hmm.